The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Deep Space Nine episode, Starship Down. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Cory Stika. Hey, Father Cory. How's it going? And Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. I thought we were doing Watership Down. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, the rabbits in this one is going to be really weird. (laughs) Folks, be sure to stick around to the end of the show. We've got some great listener feedback. Actually, some really interesting stuff today. And I want you to remember to like The Secrets of Star Trek wherever you encounter it on Facebook at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Retweet us on Twitter or X. We're at SQPN. And uh, leave comments wherever you find us. We love to hear from you. And I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network. It's our newest show, and it's going like gangbusters. It's called The Secrets of Sacred Art, uh, which is a video program, so you can see the art as they discuss it. So it's all, we also have a, a podcast audio version, but the video version adds so much more. So be sure to check that out. We have that at sqpn.com slash art, or you could just go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Media, where you can watch it. And like Dom says, do check it out, but it actually is nothing like Gangbusters. So don't worry. <laughs> doesn't start with a screaming siren. Doesn't involve catching <laughs> catching organized crime members. Right. Uh, no gang signs or anything. Yeah. Gangbusters <laughs> was a real show that is the origin mm-hmm. of the phrase coming on like Gangbusters. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. good. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, today we're not discussing gangbusters. We're, t- we're discussing Starship Down. So, Jimmy, could you give us a recap of what happens in this one? This week, we get a submarine warfare episode. Captain Sisko and the gang are on the Defiant in the Gamma Quadrant. They're helping negotiations with a Gamma Quadrant race that Quark has been cheating. But things go even more sideways when the Jem'Hadar show up and chase the alien ship into a nearby gas giant. The Defiant follows them in, but a series of disasters then happens. There's a hull breach from the pressure of the gas giant. Weapons fire from the Jem'Hadar takes the bridge offline and severely injures Captain Sisko. And a Jem'Hadar torpedo impacts the ship but doesn't explode immediately. All of this gives us a series of side quests for our main characters. Julian must keep Jadzia alive in the hull breach section of the ship. Kira must keep the concussed Sisko awake on the bridge. Worf must learn to work constructively with Chief O'Brien's engineering staff, and Quark must work with the alien trade delegate he cheated to defuse the torpedo. In the end, they all succeed on their side quests, and we have bonding experiences all round. They then manage to destroy the Jim Hadar and rescue the alien ship. Afterwards, back on DS9, we get to see the fruits of all their newly built relationships. The end. Very good. Uh, Father Corey, your overall impression of this one. It's okay. I mean, as Jimmy said, this is a character development episode more than anything else. The Defiant just the Defiant being crippled is just the the location where it happens. Um, it's kind of a combination of like a submarine, you know, uh, episode and the uh, the episode where the Enterprise hits the quantum string and it they all the crew is in different parts of the ship. Yeah, it's 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 okay. okay. <laughs> That's all I really can say about it. It's okay. <laughs> all right, Jimmy, how about you? I think I liked it better than Father Corey. I like all the character development, and I like 
the episode overall, the plot is, you know, pretty simple series of disasters set up a series of side quests, which all then get resolved and they're all character building moments. And, and I like that. Even though I'm very plot focused, I do care about characters that we're invested in and we're invested in these characters and I like to see their relationships grow. Um, this is a key moment for many of them, like Kira and Cisco. This is a big turning point mm-hmm. in their relationship. There are things I don't like about it. Uh, the main one being, well, I mean, some of them, like the Julian Jadzia plot, is pretty pretty minimal. Mm-hmm. Though it does have it does have some character building there. But the main thing I don't like about it is the relationship between Quark and the alien trade delegate, who's played by James Cromwell, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Preza from Cochrane. And he, his name is Hannock, and he's from a race that has a very primitive understanding of economics that is mm-hmm. com- commonsensical but dead wrong. <laughs> and a Quark does not explain capitalism to him properly. And this is because the writers of the show are Hollywood liberals who themselves do not understand capitalism. (laughs) And so what Quark is doing in trying to explain his perspective to the, uh, to, to Hanuk is like a caricature of capitalism. It's like, this is, Mm -hmm. this is how Hollywood imagines capitalists think. And maybe it is how Ferengi think, but it is not an adequate presentation of capitalism in response to this guy's views. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and the guy thinks he's a capitalist. He just doesn't understand mm-hmm. the essence of capitalism. This guy has more of a mercantilist philosophy. So I don't like that about it and have never liked that about it. But otherwise, mm-hmm. I like the episode. Well, I want to get deeper into that oh, uh, as there's, we go there's, along. There's too. also but, a huge scientific mistake in it too, but I can forgive them for that because they didn't. I don't think they knew the truth on this one in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll get to that too. Uh, as I'll give my impression, which is, um, I feel like every series pre, you know, Discovery does a starship as submarine story. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. I, I didn't check it, check to make sure, but certainly TOS did it. Ratha Khan kind of does it uh, with the mm-hmm. you know, the the Reliant, um, um, and I'm, I think TNG does it. So I, and certainly this is another one of them. Uh, so it, this is where all series have gone before. It, it was nothing really new, you know, in that sense. Um, it was it was a, a it was a trope designed to get the characters into a certain situation where we had to have these relational moments. And I did like a lot of these relational moments. And and uh, it, as you mentioned. Uh, that you know we did have some development. This is a fourth season episode. This is mm-hmm. you know smack dab in the middle of the fourth season or in the first half of the first season. Fourth so th- season. This is that by Deep Space Nine had become good by this time, mm-hmm. right? And it's surprising it took so long for some of these things to develop, like the Kira and Cisco relationship to make this turn. Um, but uh, you know, let's we can get into that because we start with this episode where uh, Kira and and uh, Dax are discussing on the bridge 
that it's a holiday. Uh, you know, Dax offers some a snack to Kira, and Kira refuses because she, she's fasting. Which, I, again, I like this. One of the nice things about DS9 is we have a character mm-hmm. who is religious, observes their religion, and is not a weirdo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. In, in, oh, no, and, I'm fasting. And specifically, this is a this is a religious holiday that's based on Cisco as the emissary. Yep. Right. This is the anniversary of his arrival. So the Bajorans fast. They had a feast. And now they fast in Thanksgiving for his arrival. And so Kira is fasting today. And and there's it highlights this tension in the show, which is between Kira, her relationship to Cisco as her commanding officer and friend it, it develops, but also as this religious figure in her religion. Mm-hmm. And I can see where this would be a very difficult well, line to tread. And especially as Cisco himself is very uncomfortable with this role as emissary. He really, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, and they they call it out where the reason why they went on this mission on the day they did was so that he wasn't in the region of Bajor when the (laughs) holiday was being celebrated. To have to take part in the ceremonies. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's uncomfortable. Yeah. But by the way, the, the moment where Jadzia is offering her the snack, it reminds me of a real life incident. Um, I know a woman that 20 years ago, she was from a Southeast Asian culture. She was in Southeast Asia and she had a Muslim background, but was interested in becoming a Christian, which is why I was working with her. But she worked in an office that, that had uh, people of Muslim culture and Chinese culture. And so it was a multicultural and British culture. Mm-hmm. So it was a multicultural office. And then Chinese New Year rolls around. Now, Islam has a strictly lunar calendar, which means their lunar calendar does not reset based on what the sun is doing. So mm-hmm. it's not like the Hebrew calendar, which is which was a lunar solar calendar. It's just based on the moons. And that means their year is 354 days long. And so if you have a year that is 354 days long, it is not going to stay in sync with what the sun is doing. So all the months over time are going to rotate around the seasons. So you could have, you know, the first month of the year. Sometimes the first month of the year is going to be in the winter. 30 years later, it's going to be in the summer. Mm-hmm. And so so this is this is something really stupid about the Muslim calendar. But <laughs> um, what that means is Ramadan, the month of fasting, mm-hmm. shifts around through all of the seasons. And um, this particular year, it happened to be at the time of Chinese New Year. And so my friend is in her office. She's she's outwardly a Muslim, so she's observing the fast. And her friends are Chinese, and they're coming up to her. It's like, hey, it's Chinese New Year. You want to have some of our Chinese moon goddess cookies? <laughs> and she's like, oh, sorry, Ramadan, <laughs> which, which – wouldn't be, you know, the moon goddess part also isn't really that yeah. great, but Ramadan gave her an out. <laughs> yes. Yep. I can imagine Muslims must love it when Ramadan's in the winter and not so much in the summer, because in Ramadan, you fast from sun up to sundown. Yeah. Yep. So in well, winter. <laughs> now, in, in, admittedly, for those those Muslims who are from like Southeast Asia, you know, Saudi Arabia area, that kind of balances out a lot more than it does for those up oh, true, northern climbs. It is near closer the equator. to the equator. Yeah, yeah. closer to the yeah. equator. So the days don't get quite as short down there as they do up here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
so uh, that I don't want to go too far afield yeah. on that. Uh, oh, but, yeah. but by the way, ahead, I, also just to mention, this originally was mo- meant to be more of a submarine episode than it was. Mm. Originally, they were going to get they were going to crash in an ocean. And they were going to be stuck underwater, and it was going to be water pressure and and water bursting into the ship. And Odo, the solution was going to be Odo goes into the ocean and through a crack gets into the ship and helps rescue them. And they had these big plans for doing this as a as a much more of a submarine episode, but they right. didn't have the the special effects budget, and so right. it ended up being rewritten to be a gas giant. But um, but they were the writers were really happy with the submarine draft and and they um, Iris Stephen Burr apparently for the rest of the season you know kept saying hey guys we could do that submarine movie and do it right <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk could, uh, to kind of finish up on the, yeah. the religious figure thing uh, because one of the things that kind of reminds me of is sometimes like Father Corey you could maybe talk about this is when you're when you have friends that you knew before you were a priest or family, but mm-hmm. you're also a priest or maybe maybe even the pastor of the local parish where you right. where you're friends with. I mean, that's got to be that weird, awkward line that you're kind of going back and forth on. I mean, it must be similar well, to that. Oh, very very much so. You know, with family, family. You know, my family's pretty pretty loose, so it's not a not as big a deal there. But you know, definitely friends I've had before and and people I've made friendships with in parishes now and especially with you know how much priests move and things like that that's definitely a a concern and you know confessions things like that that becomes very much a concern mm. and also in between priests you know with me and my my priest friends you know our relationship we're still very good friends and we love spending time with each other and hanging out and everything but we also have those issues of we do in many ways minister to each other as priests and so we do have mm. that that aspect that comes in as well you know, and, and it, you know, cause it's always kind of the joke I talk about where, yeah, you know, parishioners, you got it easy when it comes to confession, just find out what time confessions are available and go. Now, whether or not your priest offers them enough times is another story, yeah. but go or, when you can. Or if your priest wants to give you all kinds of advice that you don't need to hear and it stretches out all the confessions and you got this exactly. huge long line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's, those are, those are concerns, but you know, you can still have times when you know you can go receive confession. Me, I can't look in the mirror. I absolve myself. That doesn't work. I have to go find one of my priest friends for that. Mm. So. And vice versa. So, I mean, yeah, it is very much a, a real, uh, real concern. There is kind of that balance of, yes, I'm, you're my friend, but you're also my pastor or you're a priest. And, you know, I have respect for priests and how this all works. So, yeah, I, I oh, yeah, I, I very much sympathize mm-hmm. with that. And it's interesting as this, the story progresses with, you know, Cisco getting injured and Kira has to, you know, she's kind of have these, these, these warring emotions in her, you know, one, mm-hmm. My friend, my commanding officer, my friend, but also you're you're the emissary. You can't die. Like you, the, you are the fulfillment of prophecy. If you were to die, that would mean that you weren't the emissary, or that the prophets were wrong. And it creates a crisis of faith in her. And so she kind of retreats to saying, "I I don't know what the solution is, so I'm just going to pray." Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> "Wow, that is that is so awesome to see." You know, because so, sometimes I know from for me with my faith. Lord, I don't know what you're doing here. I don't know what the solution is. So I'm just going to pray and leave it up to you. And that's kind of what she does. Yeah. Uh, their conversation goes through stages. It starts with or at least what we see of their conversation. So, okay, so here's the scientific mistake. In the in the um, Jim Hadar attack on the ship, the bridge is hit, 
and all the systems are knocked offline, and Cisco is like knocked in the head and injured. So he's laying on the floor, and they get an emergency med kit, and Worf is about, and and um, Kira gets out a dermal regenerator and treats the visible cut on his forehead, mm-hmm. and then she pulls out a trans uh, a, a tricorder and starts scanning the inside of his head and determines he's concussed and has intracranial bleeding. Okay, tip number one. Use the tricorder first, treat treat the surface wound afterwards. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But Kira's not a nurse, so you know, I would care more about this if Julian had done it. <laughs> yep. Right. But then Worf is bugging out to go to engineering to try to get control of the ship from there. And he's he tells Kira he cannot be allowed to fall asleep. And this was for a long time a belief in the medical community that you if someone had was concussed, you needed to keep them awake or it could be dangerous. Their condition could worsen. Hogwash. That is not true. Whether you are awake or not, it doesn't matter. What does matter is your ability to monitor the person's symptoms. Are they getting worse or not? Mm-hmm. It's not that they will get worse if they're unconscious. But if they are unconscious the whole time, you can't ask them questions like, do you know your name? Right. And, and so, so you don't really need to keep the person awake. You can let them sleep, but you need to wake them up periodically and ask them questions to monitor their conditions. But as far as I can tell, in the 1990s, this idea was prevalent that you never let a concussed person fall asleep. And after all the records got destroyed in World War III, I'm guessing they hadn't yet rediscovered <laughs> that by the 2380s. Sure, so yeah. Kira is thinking she's got to keep him awake. And in the conversation, the first thing we hear is she's got this four, maybe we can go to a four uh, watch rotation for the crew. Mm-hmm. And then she, and she starts talking about that and thinks that's ah, just trivial. I shouldn't be talking to you about work. I'm not supposed to bore you to death. What do we normally talk about? And Cisco says, well, we talk about work. And and then that leads her to explore the fact that, yeah, we do kind of, you kind of keep me at arm's length because uh, you're not comfortable with how I feel about you religiously. So we haven't really bonded as friends. We keep everything on a professional work basis. And then he says, tell me a story. And so she starts telling him a folktale about three brothers who, four brothers who, Three or four brothers who have a giant kava root, and they get into a dispute. It's kind of like it's kind of like one of the tales from the Canterbury Tales. Mm-hmm. Only instead of the three brothers don't end up killing each other over the money, um, they decide to give the money away and go back to being farmers. Yeah. yeah. And so then she, in the middle of the story, she gets so frustrated. She says, "I, your medical condition is worsening, and I, I don't, I can't care right now." If you're uncomfortable with this, I'm just going to pray. And she starts praying in Bajoran. And then he seems to get better. And he asks her to finish the story, which she does. And then he says, tell me another story. And at that point, they've bonded on a more personal level. And then when they get back to the station, he first suggests, why don't you look into that for crew rotation plan more? Mm -hmm. And then he invites her to a baseball game for the first time ever. Right. And tells her to go to Quark because he'll he know, he'll have the hot dogs. Yeah, and she says hot 
dogs? Like, yeah. you know, she's thinking like canines those are, those, that are hot. Those earth pets that you yeah. keep as pets. <laughs> Quark will know. Yeah. yeah. To, to, now, to give Major Cure some benefit of the doubt, most of her medical experience was probably literally battlefield. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's you do fix the outside first because that's the thing you can fix when you're on the battlefield. Right. Yeah. But a, a battlefield trauma training. Uh, yeah, I did. So I did like that one. And then, um, we have the, the situation with Worf and, and O'Brien and the engineers. Now, now I got to mm-hmm. back up a bit. There's a moment where they're under attack and Cisco comes up with the idea to convert some planetary probes into makeshift homing torpedoes. Mm-hmm. And he t- gets O'Brien on the, on the view screen and he tells him, um, O'Brien says, uh, it'll take 20 minutes to put the warheads in the atmospheric probes. And Cisco says, you have 10. And O'Brien, Colomini, Colomini smirks. And you yep. know that's exactly what he expected. Like, I will tell you 20 <laughs> minutes because it takes 10 minutes, and that's what you're going to tell well, me to do it in. It's like uh, Scotty in the, the Relics episode where it's, yes. you never tell him how long it takes. You tell him twice as long. Then you look like a miracle worker. Four times as long. Yeah. Four, Four times, times as long. As long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know that I just feel like O'Brien was 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 totally knew exactly what was coming when well, he said well, 20 then, minutes. Well, then O'Brien does it himself at the end where, oh, take us 16 hours to fix the ship. You've got 12. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that is I, I did like that. Uh, and it's interesting the whole the whole thing with Worf is cuz so Worf has shown up on DS9 from the Re- Enterprise recently recently mm-hmm. at the beginning of the season and he needs to fit in and he's he's in this new strategic operations officer yeah. role which is new for him and he's trying to I don't know assert his command authority he's now in well, in he, the command track he, he he needs to learn how to command humans you know, right. he's been in the position of being led by humans, but of course he's, he's got the Klingon mindset of I'm ordered to do this. Therefore I do this and that's it. Yeah. They have this whole arc over the course of this season of helping Worf fit in what my, this is not my favorite scene in that. This is, this is a nice sequence. My favorite scene is one earlier on where Worf and Odo, the two most standoffish characters on deep space mm-hmm. nine are commiserating about have, having to interact with other people. Mm-hmm. And and Worf is like, oh, Chief O'Brien wants to like invite me over and have conversation. And and they're talking about their appro- the appropriate response is to be even more standoffish. <laughs> um, but um but here, so Worf is used to commanding Starfleet officers. And O'Brien says to him, these engineers are not Starfleet officers. They didn't go to the academy. They are – They're enlisted. They're enlisted. Yeah. Yep. And they're problem solvers. So what you need to do instead of barking at them and correcting them and, and being super strict with them, which Worf had being, you need to give them a problem and then get out of their way and let them solve it. And he also can be supportive from time to time. And so Worf starts to do that. He's still very stiff in how he does it, but mm-hmm. they have a they have a problem. He's not just he's not just barking orders at him anymore. They have an engineering problem and he says we have this problem that needs to be solved. And the two engineers he's talking to immediately start a discussion and figure out how they can go about this. Mm-hmm. And so he starts to see immediately the the benefits of the approach that O'Brien has recommended and it all works and then at the end when we're back on the station, they present him with a, a repair plan for the ship. 
and he they're wanting his authorization and and he says proceed at your discretion so it's like he's mm-hmm. totally trusting them now and it's at that point o'brien says how long and they say uh, 16 hours you can do it in 12 and O'Brien turns to Worf and says, "You can give him slack, but you don't take your reins, com- your hands completely off the reins." Right. Exactly. And, and it was and, a great and, leadership moment. Go ahead, Father. yeah, yeah. And, and by, by the way, this, that's one of the things I love about DS Nine as a former enlisted guy in the military that they actually show military or enlisted mm-hmm. troops in Starfleet. Right. This is the first because none of the previous shows had any kind of enlisted ranks. Until DS9. Right. Not explicitly, anyway. I mean, there was occasionally a hint that yeah. some of, like, the transporter chief was, a, but, but yeah. right. The, here and, we have and, it explicitly. And, and in the original yeah. series, we had Yeoman Rand. We had a few mission specialists, but, but not, it wasn't but as not clear. Like a, not, it's not, not as like clear a sergeant rank or a yeah. petty officer rank or something like that. No. Right. And that's the thing is, I like here is, um, you know, Worf is used to commanding security troops. That was what he had on the Enterprise. You know, and you know they'd be they're the most military disciplined of of the mm-hmm. of Starfleet probably. Whereas engineers are, it's probably much more relaxed. And and I think O'Brien's right actually in general with leadership. You identify people. You you only take on people who are capable of doing their jobs, and then you 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 give them the initiative to do mm-hmm. the job as they see fit. Now, if they're not capable of doing that. Then they shouldn't be in those positions, and I think that's a, a great leadership uh, uh, lesson here in Star Trek. So I, I thought it was pretty good. Um, so we have that that vignette, and then we have the Jedzia and Julian stuck in a turbo lift. Um, this whole sequence where there's a hull breach and some of the gases from the gas giant leak in, and uh, this was all supposed to instead of gas it was supposed to be water, and that would have made it much more dramatic. Um, instead, they're just like cough, cough. There's um, there's a little fog yeah. in the and they're corner. they're they're huddling to keep each other warm, maybe because they talk about how the walls aren't very thick. They're letting the cold of space in. Originally, this would have been they're huddling in a big puddle of water, right? And right. and it would be obvious why they were needing to do that, right? Uh, it it is interesting, like because she uh, she's injured and she's pointing out to Julian how you know they're huddling together. Uh, a year or two earlier, and he would have been using this as an opportunity to make a move on her. Well, um, she doesn't. She doesn't say it that way. What she says um, is, a year ago, if you'd have done something like this, I would have thought you were just trying to be a hero. Right. Mm. And Bashir says, and now, now that I know you better, I realize it's just a really stupid thing to do. And <laughs> he <laughs> says, he says, you're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> which it was so the 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 bulkhead is closing you know the the gases from the the giant have got the 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 planet the planet have gotten into the ship and instead of you know like being the the chief medical officer and going with the those he did rescue he instead jumps through the bulkhead before it closes and rescues her alone and leads them Tries all to, to their own yeah right yeah. Yeah. He also says that you just took several lungfuls of fluorine and it's like I hope you mean below several only a few parts per million of fluorine because fluorine <laughs> above a few parts per million is extremely toxic to to biological life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um but but th- then she he kind of um 
calls her out like, oh, he realizes you liked me chasing you. And now you're kind of disappointed that I'm not chasing you anymore. Uh, so I thought that was kind yeah. of fun. A uh, little yep. Dax moment. And it is kind of a clearing. Of, I mean, even though there's not much to this plot, it is a kind of clearing of the air for the yeah. two of them where it's like, okay, they've both reconciled with the their prior relationship, not becoming a romantic one. And we're okay with them going forward as friends now. Right. Um, one thing I, I want to mention the the uh, the homing warhead thing that the the plan that Cisco came up with was they'll home in on the nearest metal me, uh, metal device you know the metal body in the in the gas giant's atmosphere and O'Brien brings up the obvious or somebody brings up the obvious question um, what if it doesn't detect the Jem'Hadar ship will be the and, and that's a that's a risk and that's mm-hmm. an actual thing um, in today's you know. Uh, submarine battles is mm-hmm. they send out homing torpedoes and those torpedoes will eventually lock can they can set them to just lock on to the nearest big metal thing and if the nearest mm-hmm. big metal thing is the ship it just came from that could be a problem you so, would think uh, they'd build a friend or foe system into those torpedo targeting systems though so it doesn't home in on a friend I, big metal object i would assume the newer newer systems have that because mm-hmm. i know they've, well, they've had friend or foe with aircraft for a long time the, well, I don't want to get it too much. They are wire guided. Most torpedoes now are wire guided out to a very long range, but that's so there's only so much wire. Um, and so they can set them to home. Um, but you, but you have to be, it's, it's complex. Like the, you, you don't want to be transmitting underwater a signal because then that becomes a way for the, uh, the other submarine to know where you are. So then it would have to be a passive system. It would have to recognize you. Passively, passively. And, and that that's a very complex thing. So, but yeah, but, the uh, also at one point they're counting on that homing because for the second Jim Hadar ship, they're expecting it. I guess Wharf is the one executing this, but they're expecting mm-hmm. it to come in behind them because they are trying to be three D in their mm-hmm. approach yes. to being above or below, like in the Mutara Nebula. Um, and and they use that, expecting it to home back towards them, but to hit the Jim Hadar ship that's about to zoom in and for an attack. Ridiculously close, because all attacks are ridiculously close on Star Trek, because you've got to get the enemy ships on the same screen. Yes. Yep. Also, there's a dramatic moment early on, before Cisco is disabled, when the, the first disaster that happens is the 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 hull pressure prob the pressure problem that mm-hmm. where they need mm-hmm. to seal the hull and Cisco gives the order to seal the hull knowing Jed Z is on the other side. Yep. So he just gave an order that he believed would lead to the death of not only Jed Zia, but also his friend Curzon Dax. Mm-hmm. And he was willing to make that call anyway. And then he gets his comeuppance. He gets he gets knocked in the head and almost dies. <laughs> right. But you see the, the, the Captain Cisco, the one who yeah. does his duty, and you know, that this is one of the reasons why he's my favorite captain, is he you know, he 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 makes the hard decisions. You know, he has to, he's confronted with and them he, and makes them. And he won't hesitate. And he won't hesitate either. Right. It's just like this needs to be done. I do laugh though they have this whole explanation of, oh, we're gonna do this thing to find him. It's like yeah, they just described active sonar. Speaking <laughs> yeah, of things that must have been forgotten after World War Three. <laughs> it basically active sonar. Uh, all right, let's talk about the Hanuk, the Karema, and Quark. Uh, there, so the whole episode starts with this negotiation in the mess hall with uh, Cisco, Quark, and 
Hanak of the Karema. And the, the, what's happened is, is because the Dominion is, doesn't like the, the Federation, uh, meddling in its affairs, the Federation has started trade with the Karema through the Ferengi as intermediaries. And why didn't anyone think this was a problem at the Federation? The Ferengi are, of course, going to be cheating because that's what they do. And so the, the it's clear uh, Hanak mentions these um, levies and taxes in that fees. the uh, – In fees. that the Ferengi are yep. piling on top of the contracts. Which are making them unprofitable. So he's basically saying we're going to cut off trade relations unless you can give me a better deal. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, when they they only tell us what two of the fees are, but I got to give the Ferengi props for they're not they don't sound unreasonable. At yes. least you can quibble about the percentages, right. but the fee itself does not sound unreasonable. One of them is a four percent inspection fee for f- trying to find changeling infiltrators. Mm-hmm. Okay, having some kind of Inspection process for changeling infiltrators is reasonable, and there could be a cost <laughs> attached to that if you're shipping trade goods, just like you have you know, screenings for other dangerous contraband that could be mm-hmm. sent through the trade lines. Another was a 6% offset, so they're shipping uh, Carmen fleece. And yeah, I checked. They sometimes pronounce it Carmen and sometimes Karemen. Yep. They should be clearer about that in the scripts of the actors. <laughs> right. But um, they're shipping this fleece, and so well, that's going to have a negative impact on the people who 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 normally make fleece in the Alpha Quadrant. And so, in protectionist trade trade systems, you impose a tariff to mm-hmm. offset the problem being caused by this cheaper import stuff to protect. That's why it's called protectionism to protect your uh, your local producers. And so there's a 6% offset for the Tarkalian sheep herders here in the Alpha Quadrant because of the competition from the Carmen Fleece. And that sounds reasonable if you're a protectionist, which as, mm-hmm. as capitalists, the Ferengi shouldn't be into protectionism. Mm-mm. But um, it sounds good to those Federation fools. and and so you know these these don't sound unreasonable but stacking them up yeah it can make your trade deal unprofitable Mm. yeah and of course they got kind of the double play on words too with the fleece because of course the kremens feel like they're being fleeced they're being fleeced yeah that's good (laughs) Uh, and quark throughout this he keeps trying to pivot trying to you know figure out a way to keep getting, get on Hanok's side, you know, get him on his side and uh, return to the prophet. And his first attempt is to compliment Hanok on his lobes, you know, his, Mm -hmm. his business sense, you know, and then offers to cut him in on the deal so they can scam the Federation together. Actually, his first attempt is to blame Rom and says, Oh Yeah. yeah, my, my, I, my mistake was I, I, I let my brother Rom do these contracts, and they're, he's not as familiar with Federation law as Ferengi law, and he made a mix-up, and blah, blah, blah. And Hanuk is not buying that. He says, no, <laughs> you tried to cheat me. And at that point, Quark comes clean and says, you've got business lobes. You saw right through my attempt to cheat you. you. You're worth doing business with. Tell you what, let's team up and cheat the Federation together. And right. Hanuk says, you're despicable. <laughs> but what Quark ultimately wants to do is preserve a business relationship here. Mm-hmm. And so he keeps trying to find ways. His next attempt is to engage 
um, Hanok in the thrill of trade. Mm-hmm. And this is where things get stupid. The so he he's talking to him about like haven't you ever you know sold substandard merchandise or overcharged for a product just for the thrill of it and 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 Hanuk is like no I haven't the and he this is a direct quote he says the Karema believe that merchandise has a set value determined by the raw materials and the labor involved in creating it. Factor in transportation costs and a reasonable profit margin, and you arrive at a fair price. Okay, that's a Hollywood understanding of the basis of fair price. It is a commonsensical understanding for a person who has never seriously thought about economics. So it sounds plausible, but it is basically a, I guess, mercantilist rather than capitalist approach. Yeah. Okay. It com- what it's missing is it, 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 I mean, it incorporates factors that sound reasonable and that are part of what's a fair price for something. Raw materials and labor and transportation and the need for the entrepreneur to make a profit so it's worth doing in the first place. All of those are factors that need to be considered in establishing price. But it it views price reasonability exclusively from the perspective of the seller, not the purchaser. And as a result, it is a one-sided presentation of what would what you would think a fair price would be that does not involve the market mechanism, which is the core of capitalism. The basic idea in capitalism is you allow both parties the buyers and the sellers to agree on what a fair price is. You don't arbitrarily dictate it via prior concerns. Let's suppose now the system that Hannock described can be reasonable in some situations. You know, let's say I want to manufacture, um, you know, a hamburger. So I've got a as a hamburger seller, I've got to pay for raw materials. I've got to pay uh, labor costs to get the hamburger made. I've got to have servers, so that's my transportation costs. I have servers to transport the hamburger out to the customer, and I need to make a reasonable profit, or it's not worth me doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so under ordinary circumstances, if a customer is happy to pay, let's say it's five bucks for a hamburger. If the customer is happy to pay that, and that covers all my costs and gives me a reasonable profit, then it's all fine. But then let's suppose a hurricane hits, and hamburgers are not people's top priority. What they desperately need are something else, like antibiotics. Yeah. Suddenly, the price of ham- the reasonable price of a hamburger will plummet. And I can't, if I want to stay in business, I shouldn't be tied to the hamburgers. I need to start selling antibiotics because that's what people really need in the wake of this disaster. And so the price of the, the, the price of hamburgers you would expect to plummet in that situation. You may, I might not be able to make a profit on them. You know, I might not be able to cover my costs. What I need to do is meet the needs of the customers by giving them what they really need now, which is antibiotics. And if there aren't very many antibiotic producers, then you want the price of antibiotics to be high. So that will motivate more 
businessmen to get into the business of producing antibiotics so there will be enough to meet the demand. You need the price to go up in order to incentivize more production. And so this is how the market mechanism works, and it is not understood by most people, and it is not understood by Hollywood liberal writers. And so all they have Quark doing, instead of explaining the market mechanism to Hanuk, where both buyers and sellers agree on what a good price is, given the circumstances that both the buyers and the sellers find themselves in, is he gives them this nonsense speech about the thrill of the chase. Well, it, it also misses the whole like competition aspect, which is the, yeah. and that's where the thrill is for some people. Yeah. But but competition, I I'm a hamburger seller, and I have figured out a way to lower my production costs. So maybe I'm using cheaper meat, <laughs> and mm. so I'm undercutting the other hamburger seller, and so he's losing business. So what does he do? He needs to change his price, or he needs to change his value proposition and get people to understand that his burgers are better. Right. But it's like. Yep. It, it it is you know the what the economics that we're presenting here are way oversimplified, way oversimplistic, and not really reflective. And and I do I like Quark is onto something where there is a thrill that some people get out of business, but it's not the thrill of cheating people. There mm-hmm. is a thrill in risk, and we see that all the time in capitalism. But that's not the only reason people you know engage in capitalism. It, it's kind of silly in, in that sense. Yeah, and so I can kind of get, okay, I guess Ferengis don't think. I mean, I'm sure Quark knows everything I just said about market mechanism, even if the people (laughs) writing him don't. Um, (laughs) But the thing that sings for Quark is not the beauty of the market mechanism, although it would be an interesting take on the Ferengi if it did. Mm. The thing that sings for Quark is the thrill of the chase Mm -hmm. and pulling one over. And so I guess I can kind of accept Quark pitching to to Hanuk on this basis, but it's not really how economics works. And I view that as a weak point in this in this episode, since it mm-hmm. raises the issue of what is a fair price and never gives us a plausible answer. It gives us a fake plausible answer. They do a better job in the in another episode where Nog talks about the river, the Great River, the Great Material Continuum. Yes, right. Too much in one place, not enough in another. It all needs to even out in a way that's mutually beneficial to everybody. Right. Which is what capitalism does. That's what the market mechanism does. Nobody is dictating prices. It's all mutual agreement between buyers and sellers. And so everybody wins in that situation. Mm Mm-hmm. If you navigate the great material continuum properly, that is. Yes. (laughs) But – and so Cork – uses this opportunity of the torpedo that it, the Gemini torpedo that it pierces the hull uh, very nicely by the way that keeps creates a seal which is yeah. uh, mm-hmm. an atmospheric seal um but uh, it pierces the hull and they he decides we're going to disarm it together mm-hmm. like he's going to and there's this i don't know what do they call it? like the this the thrill of you know death defying actions mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. where he, yeah. and so it 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 boils it becomes down a to a metaphor yeah. Right. And it boils down to a 50-50, you know, chance. One of these we have to pull one of these two things out of the torpedo and one of them will make it explode and one we will survive and we and, just have to decide and, which one. Yep. And disarm it. And they have no yeah. way of knowing. Oh, this also so by the way, I like the bit where they're about to start trying to defuse the torpedo because it's making noise and it's like it didn't explode immediately, but it mm-hmm. 
it it may explode soon if we don't disarm it and if we do everyone on the ship dies right and so they're starting to disarm it and and Hanok is like do you know how to get this open and quark is like there isn't a lock that can't be picked and i'm <laughs> yeah. like okay yeah that's a good quark line and that fits yep. quark yes so they get it open and then Hanuk reveals he understands part of how its circuitry is designed because he once saw a a a a, a schematic, schematic of this Jim mm-hmm. Hadar warhead and Quark says when did you when did you see that and he says at a trade show we we make these we sell them to the Jim Hadar yeah <laughs> and Quark is like I thought you said you never su- sold substandard merchandise this thing was <laughs> supposed to impact was supposed to detonate on impact wasn't it <laughs> and Hannock says, maybe I should offer them a refund. And they, <laughs> and they, and they both laugh. And then Hannock explains there's these two things. One of them will cause it to detonate. One of them will cause it to defuse. Yep. And they have no way – Hannock can't remember which is which. So Quark finally just randomly grabs one. And yep. all of a, all in a flash, he just grabs one. And it turns out it's the correct one. They both survive. They're both immensely relieved. And this has become a metaphor for helping Hanuk understand the thrill of risk. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was basically red wire, blue wire. You know, which yeah. one do you yeah. cut is what it came down to. The idea that Hanuk never risked anything ever in his life. He doesn't understand risk. I mean, it just, it's hard to, you're a spacefaring culture. It's hard to imagine and it was, that it was risk, but it was also gambling. And that's the part yeah. that he really pushed against was gambling. Yeah. Okay. It was and then, a gamble. And then yeah. we get him gambling back at Deep Space Nine and gambling winning. better than – and winning <laughs> and gambling better at Dabo than Quark expected him to, which Quark yeah. is a little chagrined about. Yeah. Yes. yes that, that was good. Now, one uh, thing I did get a kick about those two <laughs> is how Hannock towered over – Quark, mm-hmm. with James, good reason. James Armin Shimmerman tall. is five six. James Cromwell is six seven. Yeah, wow. So he's literally a foot taller than Quark. But it, yeah. but they play that up too, though. Where I mean, it was it was you saw the size difference. A lot of times, yeah. you know, they'll balance that out with camera tricks and things like that. But they didn't hear. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Any other uh, notes on this one, Father Corey? Nope, nothing here. How about you, Jimmy? Nope. All right, let's get to that listener feedback then. And our first feedback comes from our discussion on that Enterprise episode, Vox Sola. Uh, Paul S. on YouTube writes, So some retcon headcanon for Malcolm and the Shields is he was part of Section 31. As such, he was aware of reports or whatever about stolen shield tech and the latest reverse engineering efforts. Anyway, good discussion about the Snotbooger Alien show. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and as they do establish at the end of Season 4 of Enterprise, Malcolm has connections to Section 31, and Mm -hmm. that could be an explanation for why he was aware of advances in shielding technology in this. Mm. And he's Uh, security, too. I mean, he was put on that ship as head of security, so it makes sense that he would be up to date on the latest security news next next sure. to the chief engineer who is in in enmeshed in the alien snot booger yeah. <laughs> right right um then this next email i want it needs a little bit of background um it was in response to um this this emailer she she's been watching our episodes uh in order mm-hmm. um and uh, she got to the end of one of the discovery seasons and so she says 
Uh, this is EP via email. I've not watched Discovery, but I'm confident that your episodes about the series are far, far more interesting than I would find the series itself. All the same, I was happy when I got to this episode, which is the season finale uh, one, because it meant you would be discussing other series. I thought my favorite part would be hitting play on the next episode, but then you had this great discussion at the end about how the current generation of writers, and many people in general, seem to need more emotional validation than previous generations. Being a Catholic homeschooling mom of a large family, I sometimes worry about how my kids are spending their days compared to their peers. Instead of focusing on homework and getting extra study time in every day, which is what I imagined when I started homeschooling years ago, and uh, same here, <laughs> when we started homeschooling, <laughs> they have to bounce back and forth between homework, cleaning, laundry, babysitting the littles, cooking, and those odd triage moments that pop up like when your youngest child sneaks away and decides to make a mountain slide out of all the books on the bookshelf. That sounds very specific as an anecdote. <laughs> Your discussion gave me encouragement. My help at home was valued when I was a kid going to traditional school, but the help of my older kids is not just valued, it is absolutely essential, especially when my husband is out of town for work. When they aren't helping out, they can immediately see the results. The littles get out of control, dinner gets burnt, things get lost, etc. I don't in any way consider this to be the equal of a national emergency like World War II or the Depression. We're not struggling for food or survival. But all the same, it makes me feel a little bit better about depending on them so much and having to work together as a family through the good and bad moments just to get through each day. Maybe in a small way, it's helping them develop emotional resilience along with life skills. Oh, I think it's more than in a small way. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, um, yeah, I know people are surprised with, with various aspects of homeschooling. One of the things is, oh, you mean you don't have to spend seven hours a day <laughs> in a class setting? <laughs> yeah, that just shows you how much of a regular public school day is well, wasted. And then yep. hours a day at home doing the homework that the teacher assigned. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. It's just there's a huge amount of time waste in, in public education. And you don't need that. You don't need that long nope. to get an education in a in a homeschooling setting. Nope. Well, I I even learned that when I was in high school, I, mm -hmm. you know, public high school. But my senior year, I took like an advanced math class, and the teacher would spend fifteen twenty minutes giving us the lesson. We would spend fifteen twenty minutes doing the homework, and then we'd go play on the computers mm -hmm. for the rest <laughs> of class. Yeah. Right. But in terms of character building and preparing them for adulthood, I think what you're doing is great. Now, when I've seen this in large families where, you know, once you get this kind of production line going and then once mm -hmm. you, once you have the huge number, the larger number of kids, the older, the first ones are old enough to assume responsibility, which is great for them. Because yes. as an adult, you have to, what, what parenting is, is not protecting your child from life it's preparing your child from life for life and adults do have to shoulder responsibility so um letting them letting them have responsibility and see the consequences of what happens if they don't fulfill it early on is great for character building um modern teenagerism is something that historically simply did not exist Mm -hmm. It has only been in in the last century that we have had this extended adolescence where kids had basically no responsibilities outside of school and where where they could devote all their time to playing video games or getting together with friends and things like that and they had no responsibilities they had to take care of and that's what's led to emotional fragility 
on the part of people of a lot of younger people today because they've never had to be responsible for anything and so they've never learned to be responsible and right. they they think everything is like it's supposed to be like it was in adolescence when i was catered to for everything and they get in a snit and get offended when everything doesn't go exactly the way they wish it would go so right. i think you're yeah. giving your kids an excellent foundation for adulthood exactly yeah, and if you, a, the, if you want to see the consequences, if you want to see the consequences of that mindset of this extended adolescence, you remember those videos that were popular about a year or so ago, where you know a day in my life, and you know works for Twitter or something like that. And like I remember one where she did like maybe three hours of work total, and the rest of it was getting a pedicure and going <laughs> to the spa and going to the cafeteria and having this ca- you know catered lunch and all these things, and like did like one meeting and a couple of hours of work, and that was it. And then and she got came fired in. like a month later. Elon <laughs> Musk came in and got rid of half, yep. three quarters of the staff. As a dad of five homeschooled kids, I, I, you know, agree with all of that. And, you know, the fact is, is um, emotional resilience is a key aspect of learn. Like people ask, how, how do you, how can you manage to have more than two or three kids at most? Like once you've had three, it, it, it's only additive. It's not like, like the first, after the, like, after they outnumber you with three, that's the hardest. Three is the hardest. But after that, it's just additive. And as they get older, you can give them more things to do. And mm-hmm. in very large families, 12-year-old boys and girls can very well take care of one-year-olds mm-hmm. for very a lot of things. And, oh, easily. And giving them responsibility for each other and being responsible to each other in a family is is huge so i agree and, and if you if you have a 12 year old who's learning to change one year old's diapers that's a great preparation for adulthood they're not going to complain about things much less than changing diapers as an adult <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's <laughs> the lesson of adulthood is there's a lot of that stuff to deal with in adulthood yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i had to work i worked as a nursing home as, as a high schooler oh yeah there's there's plenty of, oh. of that going on there too so yep. i get yep. it um yeah uh, we I could go on and on, on this, but uh, that will that that was an excellent excellent letter and, and, and excellent and, connection to Star Trek. Thank you. And by the way, I'm I'm glad we're more entertaining and interesting than Star Trek Discovery. I mean, I know it's a low bar, but I'm glad we're above it. <laughs> yes, it's very good to be above that bar. I think we're better writers than those of the Star Trek Discovery series. Yes, sure, sure. Uh, all right, we'd like to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Mary M., Javier D., Jeffrey C., Father Mike S., and Rick S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. We'd love to know what you thought of Deep Space Nine's Starship Down. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek, our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia, send an email to trek at sqpn.com, or visit our Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. And you can also watch The Secrets of Star Trek on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Voyager episode, Initiations. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you. Live long and prosper. And remember the 285th rule of acquisition, no good deed ever goes unpunished. 
<laughs> and Father Corey Stika, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, Tarkalian sheep herders. You have to feel for them. 